0: you are listening to Talking Machines. I'm Katherine Gorman. And I'm Ryan Adams. And Ryan, today we're going to talk about variational inference.
1: Yeah, so this is a topic that I think for people who are interested in Bayesian machine learning is a really confusing one when you're sort of first getting started. So just to remind you, the, the sort of the Bayesian machine learning story is that we build a model, perhaps a generative model, that maps some latent structure and latent parameters into the observations that we see. And this could be a supervised model or unsupervised or time series. There's a lot of different versions of this. The idea then is to sort of invert that generative process and condition on the data and then be able to sort of interrogate the properties of the parameters that we didn't get to see in that latent structure and perhaps make new predictions with this sort of very nice property that we can do things like integrate out our uncertainty when we make predictions so rather than just saying that there is one set of parameters under consideration we acknowledge that the data may be consistent with a whole set of hypotheses each with different properties and and may correspond to different kinds of estimates of what's going on and perhaps we want to make predictions that take all of that into account and in some sense kind of know at least some of what they don't know it also has the nice property that one can do model selection So for example, you run k-means clustering or something like that and you'd like to ask questions about what k should be. Or you want to estimate how complex the model should be relative to how simple it should be. There's always this Occam's razor type trade-off that we're trying to make between parsimonious models and ones that fit the data well. And this is something that no matter how we tackle machine learning and statistics always comes up. Bayesian machine learning offers some interesting uh, ways to tackle that via different quantities, in particular a quantity called the marginal likelihood. Which naturally trades off the measures of complexity against measures of data fit. The challenge with Bayesian machine learning though is that most of the time when we condition on data we get a posterior distribution that is not easy to manipulate. It may have some closed form in the sense that it it can be evaluated point-wise but there's some normalization constant we don't know. That is to say that well-behaved correct probability distributions integrate to one. They have a volume of one And in general, the number that we need to cause our posterior distribution to normalize to one is something we don't know. And in fact, it's that, it's exactly that quantity, the marginal likelihood that I just mentioned for model selection. Um, And often it has some kind of very complicated shape. It's not generally going to be as simple as like a Gaussian distribution or something like that. It's going to be some weird, funky distribution. And so when we want to interrogate that distribution to ask questions about our data, then we're going to need to compute expectations under that distribution or maybe ask questions, you know, what's the most likely configuration, things like that. But if the distribution is messy, then those kinds of queries can be challenging to make. So there's a Uh, an increasingly large toolbox for for handling these kinds of things. This is what we call doing Bayesian inference. And the issues that we face in Bayesian machine learning are very, very similar to those in, in Bayesian statistics and other areas. So at one end, we can make really simple models in which everything is closed form and easy. There are methods that arise from sometimes kind of coming out of statistical physics and other areas where you can build dynamic programming procedures that will do inference for you. These are ways that you can sort of do iterative procedures, sort of like you can think of them as passing messages on a graph and under certain conditions, these things will converge to estimates of the quantities you care about. And then there are Monte Carlo methods, in particular, Markov chain Monte Carlo methods, which we variously mentioned, And, and these are ways to draw samples from a possibly very complicated distribution and then look at those samples as a proxy for the distribution itself. And Monte Carlo estimates allow us to essentially ask all the same kinds of questions that we would we would want to ask of the distribution, particularly if we draw enough samples. Variational inference is a pretty different idea from these other approaches. What it does is it says, okay, I have this complicated and annoying distribution that I don't know how to handle. I'm going to approximate it with a simpler distribution. And then I'm going to interrogate that simpler distribution because everything now is hopefully nice and enclosed form. So what does it mean to have a simpler distribution? So typically what it means is that it has an exponential family distribution. So Gaussian distribution is a classic kind of thing, but also various kinds of discrete distributions and betas and the kind of textbook Wikipedia distributions that you might see. Those are often exponential family distributions and they're tractable and easy for a variety of reasons, essentially because they're, they can always be written as E to something linear in your sufficient statistics. So we like those distributions a lot, but most of the posteriors for real models don't have that structure. So first we choose a typically a, one of those families uh, or a collection of those families depending on whether we, we're tackling discrete variables or continuous variables. And then we often make the assumption that we're going that we can approximate the distribution with a factorized distribution. What that means is that rather than writing down a possibly complicated posterior distribution in which there are correlations and dependence between the different dimensions, we are instead going to make our approximation not have those dependencies. So we're going to focus entirely on the what you might call the unary marginals. By that, I just mean focus on the individual properties of each dimension of this posterior distribution and not worry about the way they interrelate. Inter- and for many of the queries that we want to make, this is sufficient. It's not always sufficient. And so sometimes we need to do do more, but often this is this is pretty good. It's basically saying that I'm going to imagine that I'm going to focus on sort of first-order properties and not worry too much about second-order properties. So that's step one. We have our complicated posterior distribution, and now we choose some approximating family. And then the idea is we're now going to come up with some criterion for fitting that approximating family to this complicated posterior distribution. And this is where some different methods diverge from each other, uh, because there are different ways to decide when two distributions are similar to each other. So the most common way that we, uh, that we think about this is to use something called the Kobach-Leibler divergence or the KL divergence, which one often sees. And it's a particular uh, way to think about the sort of similarity of two distributions. If you imagine drawing samples from one of your distributions, and then looking at the expected log of the ratio between the two distributions, then that's something that will be zero when they're exactly when they're exactly the same, and something bigger than zero when uh, when they're not. And so this is something we like for sort of reasoning about when two things are are similar. It's not a distance in the sense that it doesn't satisfy the triangle inequality and things like that, but it's a very common thing. There are, it should be said that there are other ways to do it. You know, there's like the so-called Earth mover distance, which is basically total variation distance, uh, where you're sort of looking at how uh, much probability mass is allocated to one region versus another, and then looking at sort of many possible regions. Anyway, you you can think of a lot of different ways where we might talk about the difference between two probability distributions. So we have to pick one of those, and then we have to find a way to minimize that, which can be weird and challenging because uh, simply because of the fact that most of these distance measures are going to be making a kind of interrogation of the posterior distribution. That's just as hard as the thing we started off with. So in general, we kind of wouldn't expect this to necessarily work. The good news, though, is that the KL divergence often makes this relatively easy because what it does most commonly is the expectation is under our approximation. And so that's easy. We can kind of interrogate our easy approximation. And then we're looking at the log of the complicated thing. And logs of complicated distributions are almost always going to be easier to deal with, particularly if we're thinking about their expectation under the easy thing. So... That means we can often do a lot of the computations, even sometimes in closed form, with the KL divergence in a way that we might not be able to with some of the other kinds of things. I mentioned that the KL divergence isn't really a distance, and that's because it's not symmetric in its arguments. It takes two distributions and tells you kind of how far apart they are. But if you flip the arguments, you get a different number, which is not a property we're used to seeing in distances. And what that means is that you get a different kind of variational inference procedure if you flip the arguments around. But there, things can also potentially be easy. Uh, there's a method due to Tom Minka called expectation propagation, which allows you to do variational inference uh, kind of with things flipped around. And then it turns out to be kind of like moment matching. You so you compute the mean of the distribution, you compute the variance of the distribution, and you kind of like match your exponential family to that, uh, broadly speaking. But it turns out that what you can do is you can use this really nice inequality called Jensen's inequality or Jensen's inequality. I've never really... Found out what the ground truth is on that pronunciation, but you can apply this inequality and and construct a lower bound on this marginal likelihood using a Q distribution. And so what that means is that if you use this KL divergence, then as a kind of interesting byproduct, you get a lower bound on this marginal likelihood that you can use as a proxy for um, uh, for these kinds of questions about model selection and so on. And it gives you and it makes you feel comfortable that you're sort of tackling this approach to inference with something that is, that is sort of like well-founded. We start with an estimate of this important quantity, the marginal likelihood. Uh, we're not going to be able to get at it directly, but we can get a lower bound on it, and then we use that to construct our approximation. And it winds up having a, a pretty nice sort of interpretation in the end, too, where what we're trying to do is, when we, we do this kind of lower bound, is balance essentially between fitting the sort of data well that is putting the sort of the mass of our approximation near important parts of the posterior distribution or sort of places where uh, the data are getting high probability. We're trying to balance that against entropy of the approximation. So what we'd like not to happen is for the approximation to just concentrate all in one little place where it explains the data. Well, the whole point is we want to represent the appropriate amount of uncertainty. Entropy is a way to reason about how concentrated the distribution is. So a big fat distribution that is very ambiguous about what you know what's going to happen, that has high entropy. And then as that collapses down to just a sort of a single spike, then its entropy goes away. Uh, and this, is, this connects to all kinds of cool information theory and stuff. But uh, what we find is that the, uh, the quantity that we're trying to maximize in, in the case of using variational inference is a balance between sort of this fit and this entropy. It's kind of a really natural, intuitive thing at the end of the day. And it's a very appealing alternative in many ways to uh, to MCMC, whereas MCMC, that is Markov Chain, Monte Carlo, uh, you know, you sort of define this random walk, and then you wait for the random walk to wander around long enough that it's not too biased, and you have enough samples. Uh, but essentially what you're doing is waiting on a diffusion, and you have to satisfy all kinds of rules to make sure that that sort of diffusion process is um, is, va- is going to give you valid answers variational inference has the property that it turns that whole problem into an optimization problem. And we can use all kinds of dirty tricks to do optimization. Uh, And, you know, there's a sense in which we're much better at optimization than integration. And so now there's this really cool emerging area of doing um, stochastic variational inference where you get to deploy the methods of stochastic optimization to this problem. There's cool new work using automatic differentiation to construct these things. It's really neat. You sort of get to, in a, in a sense, bring a lot more sort of computational horsepower to bear on on um, on variational inference. The downside, though, is that whereas MCMC, if you spend more computation on it, you get better answers, variational inference has the, the sort of unsatisfying property that... Once you converge to the approximation, it's going to have some error, and spending more computation on it doesn't make it better. So there's always a, a trade-off. You kind, of get a, you kind of get a pretty good answer faster, typically. You know, and there's other sort of trade-offs, too. The memory usage of variational inference is often kind of higher than that for, for MCMC and other things. But, um, but it's, it's a very nice tool to have in your sort of Bayesian inference toolbox.
0: We'll have more information on variational inference at our website, thetalkingmachines.com. This week's listener question on Talking Machines is really more listener questions. We've had a lot of questions asking us about Go, how you play it, what are the rules, um, how good is Lee Sedol? And these all come from the matches that are being played between Lee Sedol, one of the best um, Go players, and AlphaGo. So we reached out to an expert to bring you those answers. And on the line with us, we have Andy Oken, who is the president of the American Go Association. And he's in Seoul, South Korea, right now, watching these matches take place. And um, when we got to talk to him, it was right after the first match had ended. And the first question I put to Andy was, how do you actually play Go? (laughs) What are the rules and how does the game unfold?
2: I can give you a one minute rundown of what the game is. A 19 by 19 grid, uh, two players, one with a bowl of black stones, one with a bowl of white stones. And the black player puts a stone on an intersection. The white player puts a stone on an intersection, the black player, they alternate, putting stones on the board. The stones aren't removed unless a group of them is completely surrounded by the other player's stones, in which case it's captured. Um, when the board is got a lot of stones in it and both players think they uh, don't have any more moves to make, they both pass, and you count up how much of empty territory on the board you've surrounded... And how many prisoners you captured and compare that to this territory surrounded by the other player and what prisoners he captured. Um, So essentially it's a a game of fencing off territory more efficiently than the other player. Um, And you get into fights uh, over parts of the territory where you wind up having to surround and remove your opponent's fences. Um, So capturing is an important part of the, of the game. Uh, the, the model I use is um, uh, that uh, it resembles a little bit range wars in the, in the early United States when there'd be big uh, valleys of, of rangeland and somebody who wanted to set up a cow ranch and somebody who wanted to set up a sheep ranch would show up each with their roll of barbed wire and the one who put up the fences better got the bigger ranch. You're, you're building fences with your stones, um, trying to cut up the other guy's fences and wind up with more of, of territory. Um, things to know about it are uh, there is a lot of space on the board. The rules are very simple. Um, you can state them in 20 seconds, uh, but there's you know uh, 361 spots you can place the first move and 360, you could do the next move. Most of them aren't moves we would ever consider, but still, uh, the the branching factor, as they would say, is 10 times that of chess, at least. And so the number of possible games is enormous, and uh, aside from that, um, the sequences of moves that you consider can sometimes be 10 and 20 and 50 moves deep, because they might wander all the way across the board. Some of them are very easy to see for a person, so you can have a ladder pattern across the board that someone playing the game three months um, would just recognize, oh, that's a ladder. 20 moves later, I win it. Uh, The the game has always been, it's definitely not calculable by humans easily. Um, So, uh, in one sense, we play by coming up with rules of thumb or shorthands or heuristics um, uh, or common move sequences that look okay to us and we play them and then when we get into the nitty-gritty of fighting we do uh, what's called reading and reading is brute force tree search I go here he goes there I go here he goes there I go here he goes there Um, that reading is a really important part of the game for us Um, We have to be able to prune it, and I'm sure no Go player is conscious of how they do that. (laughs) We don't know, but we do. Um, And I would say, actually, that the way they designed uh, AlphaGo is uh, very much like the way a Go player's brain works. Um, You play a lot of games, you get some advice about where to be playing, And then after you've played some thousands of games, some moves begin to just look better to you than others. They look like moves you've seen before. They look like moves somehow that are solid. Um, You have trained your intuition to play a stronger game. Um, And that gets you out of most of the opening, uh, and it gets you into middle game fighting. At a certain point, you need to be reading what happens next. And that's exactly, it seems like, what they've designed AlphaGo to do. But it it certainly resembles, to my mind, uh, strongly how how humans learn.
0: So why are we playing five games? Why five matches between AlphaGo and Lee Sedol?
2: I don't know the reasoning behind their choice of five matches, Um, but certainly one match... Uh, wouldn't be a good test of the software or the player. The, you know, there are things you can learn about your opponent by playing, and there are vulnerabilities that might, might not be obvious in a single game. Um, and in fact, uh, I think one of the things we're noting in trying to assess AlphaGo and its potential is that although it's obviously a very strong player of Go, um, we th- this game today was the sixth game record of AlphaGo's that those of us outside DeepMind have to look at. They have been working on it for two years. They have been playing it against really good goal players for six months. Um, They have been working on it since they uh, beat Fan Hui, and um, this is the sixth game record. We just don't know how it plays. We know it plays really well, but... Uh, you you, you can't learn that much from a a single game. So a match of five is a a better test. By the end of it, you have a sense of the comparison between the players. Very strong players, I will say, can get a sense of how strong a player is from watching them play a single game. Um, The assessment could be wrong, but it's usually pretty accurate. And in looking at this game, they were saying it's a really good player
0: so the first opponent from the the results of the games of which were published in the nature paper was a two don level player and um lisa doll is a nine don level player can you explain the difference how much better is is lee than this previous opponent how can we understand the comparison
2: the don ranks for professionals go from one don uh, which is right after you've been certified to 9-DON, which is uh, the top rank you can get to after uh, you know, a, a very successful career. Um, the strength of players isn't linear with the professional DON ranking. Um, you get promoted based on successful play and you are never demoted. So there are 90-year-olds out there who are 9-DON professionals in, you know, mostly in Japan, and uh, they were very strong players when they were young and playing at the strength that Japanese professionals played at 60 years ago. Um, And there are 1-DON professionals who just became pro and are stronger than everyone else, and they're not 9-DON because they haven't earned their way up yet. You need to win tournaments, you need to win a lot of games, you need... Each system has a different way of promoting. So that strength isn't linear. That said, typically someone is a nine-dan professional because they have won titles, or international titles. It's an indication of great strength. Um, Two-dan, you've had some success. You've maybe won a few tournaments and won a bunch of games. Uh, But Fan Hui moved to Europe and is not active in the Asian tournament scene or in China where he was certified professional. So it's not really an indication, because had he stayed in China, he might have gone further or not. I think a better indication is that in you know, comparing competitors, he's probably in the range of three or four hundredths best in, in the world. Um, I, I actually read a, a, you know, a bit further down than that. Uh, and the other way you can assess his strength compared to Li se uh, who is probably in the top three or four in the world, um, is by players' estimates of what the handicap would be between them. And uh, we handicap by pre-placing stones on the board for the weaker player. For example, uh, Lisa Dole could give me a nine-stone handicap, and I would be very hard-pressed to win the game. He could probably give a two-stone handicap to Fan Hui. So Fan Hui is a weakish professional. A very strong Go player, but uh, a, a weakish professional, and I think that's a fair summary of where they stand.
0: So, has the gameplay been exciting? Is it what you thought would happen? Is it how you expected these games to unfold?
2: It wasn't actually different. There were some moves I didn't get early on that I thought were not good moves. Or I might put it differently, because you know AlphaGo just does what its numbers tell it to do. Um it made some moves early on that if I had made them my teacher would smack me. <laughs> no, don't do that. Don't push from behind on the fifth line. You'll lose. Um those moves may not have been great moves, but they didn't turn out to be terrible ones either, and there was a lot of other stuff going on, and it just played really well, really accurately. It was, re- it was very impressive. It certainly seems to be playing a game a lot like a person would play it.
0: If you want to find out more about the games, we'll have information on our website, thetalkingmachines.com. And if you've got a question for us, email us at thetalkingmachines at gmail.com or tweet us at T-L-K-N-G-M-C-H-N-S. This week's guest on Talking Machines is Suchi Saria of Johns Hopkins University. And when we spoke with her at NIPS, the first question I asked her was the same question we ask all of our guests. How did you get
3: where you are? I first learned about AI. So I, I grew up in a tiny little town in India. And I first learned about AI as a fifth grader, just sort of you know, in books, nothing very technical. I just thought it was really cool that you could build machines that are smart or as smart as humans. Um, and I wanted to learn more about it. Um, then, but I thought it was mostly fiction and a pipe dream. And, you know, at the time, you couldn't go on the Internet and read papers and hear about those kinds of things, uh, you know, what people are working on and uh, sort of the most recent advances. And New York Times wasn't writing articles about AI frequently. And then I went to high school, uh, this boarding school, actually, very large boarding school in Delhi, where they had a robotics club. So I got introduced to Lego Mindstorms and I was like, this is so cool. And um, I was actually the only girl. It was a very large school um, in my robotics club, of course, not in school. (laughs) And so that was really fun. I enjoyed that. And I still thought it was kind of a thing people did for fun. And then I came here for college and I went to Mount Holyoke. They were really generous. They gave me a scholarship to study here. And there I met this faculty Remember, he was at MIT. He had sort of been around the block, done many interesting things in AI. He worked on Shaky, one of the very early robots. And so with him, I realized that this isn't just fun. This is an academic discipline. I can learn about, you know, I get to use cool math and statistics and programming and, you know, principles from computer science. It was just cool. So... That led me to basically all four years in undergraduate, I spent time, started with uh, robotic hardware, and increasingly realized that the hardness was in perception, being able to see, being able to hear, listen, imagine, reason. And so that took me to then, you know, at UMass and then graduate school, and I ended up at Stanford in Daphne Kohler's lab. And there, I was mostly focusing early on in algorithms for reasoning. And then partially, you know, midway through graduate school, I sort of started to have this, you know, crisis of sorts, where I felt that I was, you know, having a lot of fun designing these algorithms, but many of these problems, I was just sort of inventing or imagining. And, you know, I, I sort of felt, well, wouldn't it be, you know, I really want to solve some problems where I feel it would be possible for us to make a big difference. I mean, obviously, there are many such problems. And that, at that point, I got attracted to healthcare. And I started hearing more about it. And the more I learned, the more fascinating it sounded. And, you know, as a kid, I used to hate biology. So for me, reading tons of biology books was not my version of fun. But the more I heard about the puzzles, the more I realized these were really questions about taking large scale data and making inference about really about complicated, interesting processes. And so, you know, that was my entry into healthcare. So, we, you know, hacked into the system at Stanford and started to get lots of data and modeling it and learning about it. And the more I learned the more. And then that's sort of what took me to Hopkins. I mean, Hopkins, you know, has many hospitals, outpatient clinics, self-insured patients, uh, many, many brilliant people working on these in these related areas. So um, it's almost like I'm like a kid in a candy store.
0: It sounds amazing. It sounds amazing. And you're working a lot on problems of uh, questions around disease prediction. Yes?
3: Yeah. So one way we think about this is, um, you know, it's sort of the general framework that we're trying to set up. Actually, let me step outside of healthcare for a second and, you know, talk about examples that are more familiar. So if you think of Facebook, right, and um, on your Facebook feed, one has to figure out what items to show you, what news items to show you. Similarly on Twitter. Right. Uh, similarly, when you're going on the web, uh, the question is, you know, what ads to show you? All of these in, in, in determining this, one of the key questions uh, the model is looking to ask is to understand how do I model this user's interest mm-hmm. over time? Mm-hmm. And they're modeling your interest by looking at the books you've bought or the items you've clicked on or the ads you've clicked on uh, or the, you know, likes you've given, etc., So, health is just a bit more complicated, but a very similar thing. Essentially, instead of modeling the user's interest, you're looking to model the user's health over time.
4: Mm.
3: Many different organ systems, right? So, you have lung function over time and uh, heart function over time and so on and so forth. And um, you're seeing a large amount of temporal data. So, data over time that are measuring aspects of your health. So, think high dimensional data. Every time you'd walk into the doctor's office, they make a measurement. So these are, you know, irregularly sampled measurements. These measurements are measuring different aspects. Some measure aspects that evolve over the course of years. Some measure aspects that evolve over the course of hours. One way to think about these are, you know, stochastic processes. and individual's health, these are different organ systems. You can think of these as a collection of related stochastic processes. And your goal is to uncover the dynamics of an individual's health in the context of a large population. So you have data from a very large population and you're trying to figure out how do you borrow information from other people's data to be able to make better decisions or predictions about this individual's likely disease Mm course. And if you could do this well, you could answer questions like, well, should I be treating this person more aggressively, maybe giving them preventative treatments, basically better resource management, right? Sending them to a high level of care, um, perhaps even, you know, which treatments might be more effective for them and things of that sort, which, which is really exciting to me. And and we've been studying this in the context of a variety of different diseases. So that's the other aspect of it. It's, very, it's a framework that allows you to see a very, very broad problem and then you can focus on applications as a way, you know, specific diseases or specific uh, populations to be able to, you know, test out your ideas and practice.
0: Yeah. So tell me about some of those applications. I know you've been done, doing some pretty revolutionary work with premature babies, but tell me about some of the other applications that you're excited about.
3: Sure. Um, so let me start with. So I think the work we did in preemies was sort of, you know, my first uh, foray into this area. It was, you know, a lot of fun and it was adventurous. Um I'd say it, it was enlightening for me to learn about some of the complexity of working in this area, interacting with collaborators, working into just, you know, teams learning about the complexity of the data and what it takes and where does the mess come from and there what we were looking you know what we were looking to do was to model you know you have data physiologic data that's being collected in bedside monitors and the question is when you look at physiologic data over time, can you infer? And this is these were babies, you know, preemies, just born. And the question was, could you uh, model the how the in, baby's health is evolving over time, right? How is their severity, disease severity, mm-hmm. uh, looking over time? And that then, um, and so that allowed us to bring build some pretty interesting temporal models. Uh, and from that, you could, you know, very s- simple features you could extract that would allow you to do things like. Triage babies into high risk and low risk babies that you might then say, well, maybe these are babies I really ought to focus on, mm-hmm. etc. So, other applications more recently, in fact, this one has been very, very fun. Um, we've been looking at c- chronic conditions. So complex chronic conditions, for example, autoimmune diseases, which are really poorly understood. Examples are lupus, multiple sclerosis, scleroderma. Scleroderma is one that I focus on a a great deal. And in these diseases, the challenges, uh, you know, they're very poorly understood. There's a lot of heterogeneity in the way uh, individuals manifest this disease. And the questions we want to be able to ask are similar in nature. Again, as you see data over time, can you car- characterize this population of individuals? Are there natural subgroups?
4: Mm-hmm.
3: And then, for any given chances, are even any single individual, you know, shares some aspects with other individuals, but they're not all the same, right? Even within the subgroup, they may be different. And so, the question is, how do you characterize heterogeneity? And by characterizing, um, you know, learning about subgroup structure that exists in the population, you may be able to reclassify disease in a more fine-grained manner, right? You might be able to learn that it's not just scleroderma, it's scleroderma of 10 types. And type 1 tends to have this, and type 2 tends to have that. And, you know, how do you do that by looking at large-scale population-level data? And so, in this case, we're looking at, uh, you know, we've been very, very fortunate to have terrific collaborators and, you know, amazing students who've been working, you um, with me on this project, and uh, we've looked at data from you know over twenty years, tracking individuals over twenty years at uh, you know Hopkins, which has one of the largest scleroderma centers. So we get to really see longitudinal evolution.
0: That's amazing. So tell me about some how you're approaching these problems. So what are some of the the models or approaches that you're using to to investigate these questions?
3: Yeah. So the way we think about um, so as I was mentioning earlier. If you think about lung, lung function, right? You can think of this as a continuous function over time, Mm -hmm. right? And similarly, you have heart function. It's a continuous function over time. And you don't actually get to see the actual uh, function of how well they're doing. But what you do get to see is, you know, few realizations from that, Mm -hmm. right? So over time, when you're making measurements, you're measuring an aspect of the health over time. And these are noisy measurements because... Obviously, it's, you know, influenced by a number of other things other than their latent health state. It's affected by, you know, maybe there was some measurement in the noise process by the instrument you was using. Or maybe they had a lot of coffee that morning or they've been running around. And so, in a way, uh, essentially, you're trying to uncover the parameters of these uh, latent, if you will. So, stochastic processes, right? Each individual's health is a stochastic process. Actually, it's a collection of stochastic processes, and you want to be able to uncover the dynamics or the parameters associated with this process by looking at this individual's data and looking at uh, data from other individuals so it's you could imagine essentially each of these individuals have their own you know process mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and now the question is how should you share you yeah. know what are you borrowing information about
0: nice so um, let's talk a little bit about uh, data, data gathering. This is something that's become um, much easier, especially in, in medicine in the last couple of years, and the popularization of electronic medical records is spreading, but it seems to be contained within hospital systems or for particular states. How have you seen the way that this kind of medical data is gathered as it changes? How have you seen it change your work or change, the ability, change what kind of questions you're able to ask?
3: Yeah, um, so I think certainly as the data qual, you know, as more and more of this data is getting collected, and it's becoming easier to extract this data, it's certainly becoming easier to um, ask more interesting questions, right? And um, especially if there's more metadata around the data itself, for instance, you know, a documentation of the processes that led to the data, that allows you to then account for different noise you know, different types of noise that might be introduced in the data you're seeing. Also, you know, the most, uh, I think the most fortunate practical thing that's happened is you're spending less of your time as a researcher collecting data and much more of your time doing interesting things Mm -hmm. with it. Mm -hmm. And I think now with this changing regulation, you know, uh, there's been a lot of changes in policy and financial regulation that's leading to, um, you know, the stakeholders themselves being incentivized. To go back and look at their own data in new ways, and that's bringing up questions that we're very well equipped to answer. Or, you know, I think we can make substantial progress, and so that's um, really what's been driving um, the the kinds of questions we ask and the kinds of questions we're able to ask.
0: So, I want to I want to go back to your academic path a little bit. You did your PhD under Professor Daphne Kohler at Stanford in ml there's a huge gender gap right so it's a relatively rare thing to be a woman in ml who was also trained by you know did her phd in in the lab run by a pi who's also a woman um do you think that uh do you think that that experience had any um impact on on your work or what you've been able to do because you've been able to train train under a woman as well
3: that's a very interesting question um yeah so first of all, I think she's an amazing advisor. It was really fun seeing her at work, you know, uncompromising, very uh, much focus, like tremendous focus on many, many different things. So I mean, certainly I think her being a woman probably played into my psyche, into being more confident about myself and doubting myself a little bit less than I would have probably otherwise. Hmm. But I think everybody suffers from confidence issues and research, right? And as a Woman, well, I it's possible people suffer, um, you know, more than the norm, especially if you don't see um, other role models. You start to question yourself about maybe it has something to do with, you know, I think the more people you see who are like you doing something that you want to be doing, the more you think you'll be able to do it. And so under that principle, I'm Im- I imagine by seeing her at work, I probably was more confident about, you know, taking on harder challenges And working on harder problems and uh, sort of tackling things more fearlessly. But it never really explicitly came up. This wasn't something we ever discussed. But yeah, I I mean, I'm actually very excited to see. I think this generation, there are many, many more successful female machine learning researchers who are doing incredibly interesting things. And so this is already a big delta from about, you know, five to seven to ten years ago during my grad school days.
0: So um, where are you taking the scleroderma research next?
3: Yeah, so this has been really fun. So um, one of the things we did was, um, well, this summer, I decided, well, why don't we consider deploying this in the clinic? And, you know, it's challenging because as a researcher, you're trying to carefully balance, you know, the uh, model development work and the algorithmic and theoretical work you're doing with the practical aspects of it. And deploying something like this is not a trivial operation, you know, there's lots of other issues that you have to think about that go beyond the. This sounds like a good idea, and it theoretically it sounds like it works. And part of the, um, part of the motivation for deploying it was that I thought it would teach me about how, you know, how the consumers in this case are, uh, you know, scholar my experts would be consuming this information, mm-hmm. but also it would motivate new questions about how should this, what kind of information do they want to be seeing, right? And how do they represent the, um, you know, for instance, when we are showing them for a given individual, when they walk in the door, we see the historical data and the app we deployed essentially looked at, uh, you know, prognosticating an individual's trajectory uh, and, you know, uncertainty bands around, you know, what their likely trajectory was going to look like. And the question is, are they mostly looking at the, you know, map estimate, or are they looking at the uncertainty band around it? You know, how do they want to understand, you know, when should they trust the machine mm-hmm. or not trust the machine? Mm-hmm. Um, which are the patients where they find this system to be more useful or less useful? And the interesting thing is, I think for this field to progress, right now what's happening is there are people who are model builders, mm. but there aren't that many examples where, where you know, work has really crossed this chasm of what I call, you know, you hear lots of people say, oh, these nobody wants to use these computer systems. And the question is, well, why? And often the answers are very simplistic because they don't want to interact with the computer. They don't want to trust what the computer says, these, these black box models. I don't think they have to be. I think, uh, you know, in our work, in both cases with preemies, you know, there's stuff we're doing in the inpatient sep- setting on sepsis, looking at adverse events in scleroderma. In all of these cases, we found clinicians to be tremendous champions for this work, rather than us saying, we should do this, they want to do this. Hmm. And so the interesting thing for us has really has been to think about, well, how should these models provide information that they can consume? And it's more of a human machine collaborative system, as opposed to this black box system that's spewing information at, at them, and they have to somehow figure out now how to incorporate this new, you know, thing within their workflow right? So I think that deployment was very um, informative in that way. So we, I had this terrific undergraduate who was interning with us uh, from Pittsburgh. So he came and he helped us implement this uh, system. Um, and he went and shadowed the clinicians in the clinic. And we got to, you know, hear about how were they interacting with the system. And that gave us m- many new insights on how to Uh, come back and do a second iteration on our model. And that's Mm. some of the things we're working on. So our real hope is, you know, um, hopefully within the year we'll have a second iteration that we can go back and deploy again. And and that'll be very fun. And similarly in, you know, related work and we've been doing in the inpatient setting, we've sort of, uh, we're now in the process, we just got funded to deploy this um, in, you know, we got approved by Hopkins to do a research deployment in a unit and monitor to see what does it look like in practice, you know, are these actually useful or are these, you know, are you telling them what they already know or mm-hmm. are you telling them things before they know, you know, those kinds of questions. So it's very fun.
0: That's fantastic. So what, um, what do you think is going to be the biggest change in the second deployment, um, that you found from that you're taking away from, from the, uh, the interns sort of survey work that they did over the, of this first deployment?
3: So um, a couple of things. So first thing we realized was which populations did the we you know which population populations do the doctors really want to make sure they get right?
4: Mm-hmm.
3: Which populations are they most uncertain about? Because you know we can look at overall error, but from their point of view, there are certain types of patients they're particularly interested in, mm-hmm. and if you can help them there, you're really you know getting their interest right in uh, you know in using this system. And so that's one aspect that, you know, so now we found those subpopulations and we've really been focusing on um, making the model more expressive hmm. to capture those subpopulations better. So that's one. The second is in formulating error metrics that uh, that help them understand performance on certain subpopulations they care about, mm-hmm. but even performance in ways that helps them in practice. So rather than saying overall prediction error or means, uh, you know, I mean, these metrics may not make sense to you per se. But essentially, the point is, rather than, um, you know, looking at these metrics that are good for comparing method one against method two and method two against method three, which we have to do for our papers, mm-hmm. those are not necessarily the same metrics that help them determine, you know, uh, how to think about the method in practice. Mm-hmm. And so, so that's another aspect uh, that's helped. A third one, actually, is how to make it more interpretable. And in this case, so very naturally in our work, we think about, you know, Bayesian models where we are uh, jointly reasoning over many kinds of information. And very naturally, the framework allows you to ask questions like, as you add this new piece of information, how does the how does your estimate of this person's trajectory change? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Right. So it's a very natural framework for adding and removing information. Right. Um, So. In some sense, it's already, in a way, easy to make interpretable models. And then, you know, taking it to another level, we see, for instance, for them, it's not just any piece of information. Maybe there are certain types of information that they think particularly tends to influence certain subsets of patients. And so thinking, focusing there to see, can we enable them in the applications to more easily add and remove information to make it more interpretable. But I think this is really sort of nice area, you know, and I think more people are starting to work on more formally thinking about interpretability, for instance. So I think we'll see very beautiful new areas in machine learning come out as we explore these application areas more seriously.
0: So you've been involved with organizing MUCMD. Tell us a little bit more about that meeting and, and how it's evolved, what it is now.
3: Sure, sure. So I think the first time was about four or five years ago when uh, Dr. Randall Wetzel, he is at UCLA, sort of first uh, envisioned the meeting. And uh, he wanted to bring together people who were you know, computer scientists into the mix, talking more Closely with clinicians, you know, over a period of one two days, and we're less about advertising and more about brainstorming. And out of that effort, so second year, I helped uh, organize it, and uh, we brought in people from informatics and statistics, really great people, thinking hard about you know more of the modeling issues. How do you think about uh, all of the data that's in the electronic health record and what are Uh, aspects of um these problems what what are ideas from other communities that we should be aware of and learning from and then over the years it's just grown and now um this year for the first time it's going to have a proceeding so i think it's a really great place especially if you're you know a student interested in this area and you want to learn more and you get to see some of this work at nips and icml and i think you'll see much more of this at nips and icml but um but uh, that, th- uh, that meeting is a really nice meeting. It's very casual, relaxed. It's in LA. It's typically in August. Uh, so yeah, it's MUCMD. So they, you should look out for it.
0: And what does that stand
3: for? It's, it's not a great name. None of the organizers <laughs> feel it's a great name. But, but it's well motivated. It's called Meaningful Use of Complex Medical Data.
0: That is a, that is a complex name.
3: Yes. But, it, you know, they call it Mm -hmm. That's easier to pronounce.
0: (laughs) Nice. Suchi Saria of Johns Hopkins University. I find her area of application absolutely fascinating.
1: Yeah, you know, it's one of these things where I feel like often when we talk about the American uh, sort of healthcare system, I uh, tend to get pretty pessimistic. Hmm. But then I talk to somebody like Sushi and I think, okay, well, there's some like people really fighting the good fight here.
0: Right. There's definitely a ray of hope at least. Exactly. (laughs) Well, that's it for us this week. I'm Catherine Gorman. And I'm Ryan Adams. Tune in next episode.